Welcome to the FinTech Factor, the podcast for FinTech operators and executives to understand what it takes to stand out in a crowded industry. I'm Alex Johnson. Today's episode is about the problem of credit invisibility. There are approximately 40 to 60 million U.S. adults that can't be evaluated by traditional credit underwriting techniques, aka the FICO score. That 40 to 60 million isn't some monolithic block. It's made up of a bunch of different sub-segments, all of which are very different. Some of them have credit files at the three national credit bureaus, but the length and or freshness of their credit history isn't sufficient to allow them to be scored by the FICO score. Some of them have no credit history at all, perhaps because they recently immigrated to the United States or because they just turned 18 and became legally eligible to open credit accounts in their name for the first time, or maybe just because they've never needed credit before and thus have no history of asking for or receiving a loan. The established players in the U.S. credit ecosystem, banks, credit unions, the credit bureaus, FICO, have traditionally done very little to help solve the problem of credit invisibility. This wasn't the result of malicious intent, but it also wasn't a simple oversight. When you already control a majority of the market, there's just not a lot of incentive to try and capture the tail end of the market, especially if doing so involves taking on additional risk and cost. This is where fintech comes in. Fintech doesn't have that constraint. Fintech companies aren't trying to protect the status quo. They are trying to take market share away from the incumbents, and that means they have a strong incentive to care about lending to credit invisible consumers. Now, this is where I have a confession to make. I didn't think that products that promise to help consumers establish, monitor, and improve their credit scores would be a very effective wedge product for fintech companies. Woo, boy, was I wrong. As Credit Karma and Chime and Tomo Credit and many other fintech companies can attest to, consumers want help solving this chicken and egg problem of credit invisibility. However, One concern that I have about many of these credit building and monitoring products is that they tend to take shortcuts that ultimately introduce problems into the lending ecosystem. Credit monitoring services often use the Vantage Score, which can give their users a false sense of security when they apply for a loan that is likely to be underwritten using the FICO score. Credit builder cards often furnish nothing but positive repayment data back to the bureaus, which gives other lenders an overly rosy picture of those consumers' willingness to pay. Now, I get it. I get why fintech companies take these shortcuts. They are trying to solve an urgent customer problem in the fastest and most efficient way possible. However, this approach also carries some long-term risk if the broader lending ecosystem adjusts to and potentially invalidates some of these fintech solutions, which is something that I think may happen. Sustainable fintech innovation focused on credit and visibility will only happen if fintech founders take a systemic approach to solving the problem. And taking a systemic approach generally means no shortcuts. In today's episode, I talk with Misha Esipov, co-founder and CEO of Nova Credit, which is a consumer permission credit bureau focused on improving financial access and inclusion. We talk about the characteristics of the credit invisible population and how they overlap with the unbanked population, the challenges in creating a borderless credit reporting system, and the rise of cash flow-based underwriting. So now, without further ado, I present The Fintech Factor. Misha Esipov, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much. I, um, I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, 
a lot of the topics I think we're going to be talking about today are are near and dear to my heart and things that I've spent a lot of time in my career thinking about. So I'm excited to to get educated on some of those. And I think the the best place to start would be if you could just give us the sort of very quick overview, like what problem is Nova Credit focused on solving? What's your mission? Our mission as a company is to, to power a fair uh, and inclusive financial uh, system for the world. And the problem that we've set out to solve is to allow the 50, 60, 70 million people here in the United States who don't have sufficient U.S. credit data to get approved for a range of financial products that they need. They need credit cards, auto loans, student loans, apartment leases, and and more, but by virtue of the way the credit bureau system has been built, they don't have sufficient in- information about who they are to get approved. Awesome. Okay, that's perfect. And I, I want to dive into that, right? Because you mentioned the 50 to 70 million uh, folks living in the U.S. who are uh, considered either credit invisible or at least unscorable, right? And um, I'd love it if you, given that this is the world you live in and what you work on, if you could kind of break down that population. Like, why are people credit invisible? Uh, what segments make up the credit invisible population? What, what Can you kind of give us some an overview of that? Yeah, happy to. So, I mean, the, the, way, the way we think about the world is, uh, you know, in, in a few buckets of uh, consumers that don't have enough bureau data. So for uh, you know, one of the most exciting segments to, to think about are, are people who are just new to the U.S. credit system. Uh, so typically the industry refers to this segment as new to credit. Uh, and so this would include, uh, you know, for example, uh, people who recently moved here. Uh, so like immigrants and newcomers, this would include people who just turned uh, eight, 18 and are, you know, uh, accessing the banking system for, for the very first time or people who you know, made it uh, later into life and never really needed a, a, a loan, but for the first time now want to buy, you know, buy a house, but I've never actually had experience with financial products. So there's, there's a new to credit uh, consumer segment, which, you know, we estimate to be roughly 15 to 20 million, uh, million people. Uh, and then there's another segment that we refer to as the infrequent uh, credit user. So these, uh, these are folks of, of, of really of, of, of any age, uh, but for a variety of reasons, just aren't regular users uh, of, of credit. Maybe they've uh, they've used it uh, at some point in the past, but you know haven't uh, haven't really maintained a, an open trade line for many many years. Um, and so really that, that segment is roughly about 10% of the U.S. population. So call it another 20, 25, 30 million million folks. Um, and you know some of the definitions here are, are a bit gray between some of these. Uh, and then there's just a, a broader catch-all uh, segment that we call like other thin file. Who, who are folks that just like they, they have a trade line that, you know, they have some experience with credit, but really not enough to give a lender high confidence about the, you know, the, the willingness to pay of, of a particular borrower. So it's, it's really these three segments. And over the course of our history as a, as a company, we really started very uh, niche, very focused on the newcomer segment. I can share a little bit more about what we've done there. So a piece of the new to credit segment. And as we've evolved and grown as a business, uh, we, you know, we strive to serve you know, all three of these buckets. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. And, you know, I think one thing that I want to just um, emphasize uh, based on what you just shared is that, there's sort of two two barriers to entry within the U.S. credit system, right? One is you have to have a credit file, uh, and you know, for someone who's uh, under the age of 18 and has never been like a co-signer on a on a loan or a credit account, they're likely not going to have a credit file. Um, and by the same token, you know, if you just moved here from another country, again, unlikely that you're even going to have a file at the credit bureaus. 
that makes up a lot of that sort of new to credit segment where unlikely to have a credit file at all. And even if they do, unlikely to have any trade lines. And then sort of complementing that group is another set of consumers that maybe have a credit file. You're going to get a hit when you go and check the bureaus, but they don't have the um, sort of depth of credit history or recent credit history necessary under sort of traditional credit scores to score that data. Is that a fair way to summarize that? That's right. Okay, perfect. The other thing I wanted to ask you about before we sort of jive into how to start solving some of these problems is if you can just sort of characterize the difference between credit invisibility and underbanked, because I think these are concepts that get uh, sort of used synonymously at times. And I think there definitely is some overlap between the underbanked or unbanked population in the US and the credit invisible population, but they're also not exactly the same. Can you kind of clarify the differences there? Yeah, I mean, the, the way the way I think about credit invisible is, is someone who does not have US credit bureau information. And to not have U.S. credit bureau information, that means you have not had experience with a financial product that gets furnished to the U.S. bureaus. When I think about being unbanked, I think about not having had access to a checking account, not having had a DDA account, a direct deposit account. Uh, and so that's that's a different set of folks. There's There's a fair bit of overlap. Like, I would think that most folks who are unbanked, who've never had access to a checking account, are likely to have never had access to a credit card or a loan. But most people who have had access to a credit card or loan have likely, are, are likely to be banked. Got it. Okay, that's a great way to think about it. So you are likely, if you are unbanked, to probably also be credit invisible. But if you are banked, there's still a very decent chance that you might be credit invisible. And in fact, at least based on the the data that I've seen on the, the unbanked population, I think the FDIC does a big report every couple of years on how Americans bank, where they look at sort of the rate of unbanked consumers in the US, meaning they don't have a, a traditional checking account or savings account. That population has been falling, correct, over the last, you know, say five years? I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but Innovation in financial services, the fintech ecosystem has helped bring more and more people into the financial services sector. And so the number of total number of unbanked population here in the United States certainly is is shrinking. Uh, but a lot of those folks still struggle with access to basic credit. Pivoting then a little bit, I'm wondering if you can just start uh, as we dig into kind of what Nova Credit does to give uh, just sort of the elevator pitch or for our younger listeners who might not know what an elevator pitch is, the YC 50 characters or less pitch for what Nova Credit does. Nova Credit is a consumer permissioned credit bureau. Uh, and so what that means is that millions of folks apply for credit uh, every year. And those individuals don't have sufficient U.S. credit bureau information to get approved. And so what we do is we allow consumers to permission, to basically to allow more information about themselves to be accessed. And in doing so, we allow those users to create a more complete picture about who they are, and we allow lenders to make a more fair and informed uh, lending decision. That's conceptually what we do. And in, in practice, we started out uh, with a product that we call uh, the Credit Passport, where we focused very deeply on the new to country segment, so recent recent immigrants into the United States who represent um, over 50% of 
the U.S. population growth in this country. So these are folks who are moving to the U.S. from, you know, from the U.K., from India, from Canada, from Mexico, from in a variety of you know, almost 200 other countries. And when they first arrive here, they're absolutely credit invisible. And sort of a little bit of the origin story, we were graduate students at, at Stanford where we realized that half of the student body consisted of international students and 100% of that half couldn't get a basic credit card, couldn't, you know, had to go ask a classmate to co-sign an apartment or to put them on their family plan to get a cell phone device. And when you, when you peel back the onion, the reason for it is that this segment of the population, when they first arrive, arrives with no financial history. And so we've developed a capability over the last five, six years that allows people to tap into their history from wherever they're from and use that information to get approved for products here. One thing I've been surprised by in the fintech space is the degree to which credit building and credit monitoring products that directly target consumers, whether it's a credit builder card or credit builder loan or sort of a a free credit score, get access to your score and monitor your score and figure out ways to improve it service. How effective those have been at engaging and getting traction with consumers? It's actually proven to be a pretty effective hook for getting consumers which addresses the same sort of basic problem I think that consumers have, which is a lot of them don't know how to break this catch-22 and break into the U.S. uh, credit system. Given how much traction those products have had, and given the fact that I would think from a building perspective, in a lot of ways, those would be easier products to build and get started with and kind of find early product market fit with, I'd be curious if you could kind of explain why you chose not to go down that path and why you went down the path of creating a bureau and building all of the infrastructure necessary to support those new-to-country consumers. Because, I mean, having worked in the credit bureau space for a while in the past, like starting your own bureau is not a uh, trivial task. So what, what made you want to go down that path? Well, it's, it's certainly not for the faint, faint of heart, um, as, <laughs> as we've learned over, over the years. I mean, I think the way we talk about this as as, as a team is that we are in pursuit of creating systemic change. Uh, We are in pursuit of solving structural infrastructure challenges that prevent people from being able to systemically access financial services. And so from a mission perspective, you know, I have a lot of respect for many of the credit building and credit monitoring companies that are out there, and they're really helping uh, drive awareness about the about how the credit system works and and how to improve your standing through a variety of uh, you know educational modules, gamification, a lot of modern you know consumer user experience techniques, but they don't actually fundamentally solve the root problem for many of these segments. They create a variety of of, of tricks, if, if you will, that allow you to build a maybe I'll use the word synthetic credit profile that is acceptable to some lenders and that allows you to help kind of jumpstart. And our our view has always been that for most consumers, there is a wealth of information that exists that can prove that they are a worthy borrower, but the data pipelines and the analytics and the compliance had never been built to allow this information to seamlessly enter into a credit application at the point of need. And that's precisely what, what we figured out how to do. And we started that with the credit passport, where we allow you know, a recent immigrant 
to self-identify and say, hey, I actually have history, you know, in the UK and I, I've, I've been a borrower, I've been a good borrower before. Help me bring that information into, you know, into the US system to help me get approved. And so we've built the ability to really plug that information asymmetry that exists where there's data on one side of the aisle that doesn't make its way across. And we've built the pipelines and the infrastructure to move it across. And it's the same thing we've done with our Cash Atlas product, which I know we'll get into uh, a little bit later. I want to dig into the credit passport a little bit more because what you just described about driving systemic change by building better infrastructure really resonated. And you know, one thing that we like to to talk about on this show in particular is the sort of value of doing hard things, uh, particularly early on. And so I'm wondering if you can kind of explain in a little bit more detail, how does the infrastructure work for Credit Passport? And what were some of the <laughs> sort of hard problems you had to solve early on in building that infrastructure? When we first started the, the business, we knew very little about credit reporting. Um, and the, the, the deeper we cut into the onion, the more we realized just how complex of, of a system exist and also just how archaic of a system it is like the way that probably it made you cry to use the onion analogy i imagine exactly and uh you know the the way that u.s data furnishing works today is is the same for the most part as it worked many decades ago right like banks report every few weeks to the bureaus how someone is performing on uh, you know their financial products and that information is basically aggregated and linked to more data based on someone's unique identifier and then made back uh, available to to those banks for a fee. And that credit bureau system that exists here, it's very similar to systems all around the world. And so, you know, we've, we've studied the, the world's credit reporting system, arguably more than, than anyone else out there at, at this point. And so the same way that, you know, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion exist here, they exist all around uh, all around the world. But one, one, of the, uh, one of the early aha moments uh, of, of the business is, is we realized that despite the fact that these three big bureaus, and there are a few other uh, multi, multinational bureaus like CRIF and Credit Info, despite the fact that they exist all around the world, they're actually regional businesses. None of them exist in all 200 countries. None of them exist in more than 25 countries from a consumer bureau perspective. And it was sort of very clear that there was an industry problem, like a market structure problem where none of the incumbents were well positioned to solve this problem because they would have to learn how to work together to do that. And so, you know, from our early days, one of the biggest challenges was how do we convince the big three credit bureaus, as well as the various smaller and independent bureaus all around the world to want to work with us? And so, you know, I spent a lot of the first two, three years of, of the business getting on a plane flying to the Philippines, talking to the central bank, talking to the regulators of the credit bureaus, meeting with the credit bureaus themselves, and making an argument to them that we believe consumers own their data. All of global data privacy regimes are pro-consumer. They, they, they are in favor of consumers having custody over their own data. And our belief is that a consumer has access to their data no matter where they are. Uh, whether they're physically, let's say, in the Philippines or physically outside of the Philippines. Like they have a, a, a right to see their own information. They have a right to use that information as they so please, so long as you know that information is protected and in, in a variety of, of, of provisions. And so a lot of what we had to do the first few years is literally fly around the world, meet with these bureaus, figure out how to navigate the regulatory context of each of these markets, 
set up potentially servers in that country, build data integrations, data standardization, audit how their equivalent of Metro 2, which is, can be quite different around the world, uh, works. And so there's just a lot of nuts and bolts we had to work through to be able to stand up this infrastructure. And uh, you know, now that we're on the other side of it, we have access to over 1 billion consumer credit files in one single standardized format and one API, which to our knowledge is, is, is more than any company in the world. Got it. Got it. So that's that's amazing. And I, I can picture you on some um, painful flights going to have some painful conversations early on to try to to try to get momentum around this. And I, I guess one other thing I was curious about is obviously you said you studied the the infrastructure, the global infrastructure for uh, credit data about as closely as anyone. When you were doing that, how did you sort of map out a strategy for where you wanted to start, right? Because obviously, some other countries have sort of better, more mature credit bureau infrastructures than others. Some have regulations and laws that are going to be easier to work with, more of a pain to work with. Some of them provide better coverage of people who are moving to the United States. So like, how did you balance all of those in terms of trying to get that initial momentum? Because I would assume that once you had it working in places, it was easier to show and to get others on board. But like, when you're initially starting to map out a strategy, how did you think about that? I can articulate how we prioritize uh, everything now, but I think the, the most honest answer when we were just getting started is we were throwing spaghetti on the wall. Totally. We, we, were, we were reaching out to every credit bureau contact around the world we could find, yep. cold email, warm intro, any, anybody that would give us the time of day, and we were making our case. We were making our pitch, and we were refining, and we were getting feedback. And, and it was through those first few conversations you know, I remember reaching out to the Mexican bureaus, the British bureaus, the Canadian credit bureaus. Then all of a sudden we got some of the Eastern, we got like, I think one of the Baltic bureaus on the phone and one of the Nordic bureaus on the phone. And it was through that process that we really started to understand what motivates the credit bureaus to, to work with you, right? And we started to refine our narrative from a regulatory perspective of how to satisfy their regulatory requirements in their country how do we get them comfortable from a cross-border perspective? How do we get them comfortable from a U.S. Uh, FCRA, Fair Credit Reporting Act perspective? And so it was it was this iterative process of just trying to kind of f- figure it out as you are talking to anybody who can give you an opportunity to learn something something new. And so that's where it started. Now it's it's a very structured process of you know we rank the world based on who contributes the most to U.S. immigration, because that's where we can have the most impact. So, for example, India is the number one contributor to U.S. annual inflows every year. It accounts for about 17% of the uh, annual flows of of immigration. Mexico and China are number two two and three, depending on how how you look at it. Canada is number four. And so we basically created a stack rank, which you can go and figure out how to do based on public State Department data. Uh, And we just went down the list. And after you look at percentage of uh, contribution, you then think about the coverage in that country. Uh, You then think about data quality. So is it a positive reporting regime? Is it a negative reporting regime? Uh, And and, and so on. I think the insight about refining the narrative iteratively is is such a good one and one that... um, it only becomes obvious sort of after you've gone through it, but it's like you're just trying to have a more successful conversation the next time than the one that you just did and just continuing to get better at it. And speaking of sales, the other thing I wanted to ask about as it relates to the the credit passport product is you guys also strike me as a little bit unusual relative to uh, some other fintech infrastructure companies in that 
a lot of your clients and the the companies that partner with you and use your infrastructure are banks or are sort of large uh, incumbent companies outside of banking that can can benefit from this technology. But it's not all just like startups or fintech companies that would be maybe more naturally inclined to listen or to hear the pitch. So I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through what you've learned doing that enterprise sales thing, because I think that's another thing that um, people tend to struggle with or maybe even run away from or shy away from a little bit, because I I can tell you have personal experience Selling to large enterprise banks is not an easy or quick process, as I'm sure you know. That's that's, that's the understatement of the day, right? There. <laughs> Seriously, it's it's a nightmare. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's the hardest part of the business is is learning how to work through a fifty plus stakeholder, multi not multi week, not multi quarter, but oftentimes multi year sale to be able to get one of the largest. U.S. or global financial institutions to implement your capability, right? And I, I think we could, we could talk about all the challenges around how you build organizational uh, momentum, how you have to map the org, how you have to refine your business case and find the right sponsor who's ready to work with you in partnership and uh, talk through all that. But at the end of the day, one of the things that makes selling to banks so difficult, especially something that touches so many different parts of a bank, right? We sell, we often sell into marketing, uh, because we are unlocking a new customer segment, but we have to work with credit risk because ultimately we are a provider of credit bureau data. And then there's you know obviously like compliance teams and legal teams and you know user experience and product teams and KYC and AML team. Like we we end up touching like such a large part of of, of a bank and, and a particular product line. But the, one of the most challenging pieces of it is that you know, particularly the big banks, every two years, they love to hit the big red button. Oh, the big sure. red button either means like we're going to, you know, it's basically a reorg or a shuffling of, of, of the team. And when your sales cycle, you know, approaches, you know, stumbles into one, you know, a CEO hitting a big red button, all of a sudden your process, you almost have to start over. And so if you're not building the discipline of always adding depth to your bench, you'll never get it done. And so like that, that becomes a never ending challenge in, in, in learning how to sell to, you know, some of the largest banks in the world, like, you know, like American Express or HSBC, or, you know, selling to some of the biggest telcos like a Verizon who, who we work with as well. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think it's something that is often underestimated, right? Because from the outside, you're like, oh, you know, American Express been around for 100 years, really stable organization. And that's true as a company. But I think one thing that's definitely underestimated is the degree of change that happens inside these companies on a pretty regular recurring basis. And, you know, to your point, like you're mapping out this org structure and who's who's driving the change and who has the budget and all of these different things. And then it's not that there aren't people after the change that are driving things and have budget. It's just they may be working in different places or they may be different people. So navigating that across a multi-year sales cycle, yeah, not for the faint of heart, put it that way. Totally. So I want to pivot a little bit to, you know, talking about the Cash Atlas product that you've rolled out since you've sort of gone to expand your product set beyond new to country um, customers. Again, the core problem you're focused on is creating a more inclusive financial system that obviously goes well beyond just, you know, unlocking credit for for new to country uh, consumers and immigrants. 
can you give us the brief overview on what Cash Atlas is and what it does? So we, we talked a little bit about this distinction between unbanked and and, and, and credit invisible, and I actually think Cash Atlas is a helps kind of clarify that even further. Yeah. Anybody that's banked, anyone that has a checking account, which is the case for I believe you know nearly, oh, I think just over ninety nine percent of of Americans. Right. There is enough information in their bank account to make a very informed credit decision. The challenge is that it's hard to get your hands on that data. It's hard to get your hands on enough of that data to be able to model it. It's hard to engineer data attributes uh, around that data. Uh, It's difficult to prove with confidence that this data will be able to increase your approvals without increasing your uh, level of credit risk. And it's really difficult to make sense of bank transaction data in a FCRA compliant manner, despite all the incredible work that many of the data aggregators like the Finicities and Plaids and Yodleys and others have, have done over, over the last decade plus. And so what we've done with, with Cash Atlas is, is we've, we've made the process of doing cash flow underwriting, meaning using bank transaction data for purposes of making a credit risk assessment, We've taken that process from a multi-quarter or even multi-year process to something that you can you know, go live with uh, in a matter of weeks. And effectively what Cash Atlas is, 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 is it, it is a cash flow underwriting as a service product where you can, you can plug us in, in your user experience, depending on what your customer profile looks like. There's a lot of nuance around where and how and the, the right moment and place to do it. But in, in short, it allows you to increase your approval rate by using the orthogonal nature of bank transaction data without having to compromise by taking on more, more risk. And so ultimately, it unlocks a customer segment that was thin file or credit invisible or, or simply just mis, mispriced and misunderstood by the U.S. credit bureau system. So cash flow based underwriting as a service is I think a, a good a good way to think about it. And you know, I want to press down on this one a little further just because this is a hot topic, right? And an area that um I think a lot of folks in fintech and in banking are are paying more attention to today. In fact, even the uh, FICO and the credit bureaus are starting to sort of embrace or think about um, how this can can sort of fit into the overall picture of how you underwrite a consumer. So when I think about cash flow based underwriting, I know you guys have been working on it for a while. From your view, where does it add the most value? And to like what extent does it complement traditional credit data and credit scores replace those? Is it a better fit for certain credit products or types of loans? Like where where do you see it adding the most immediate value? The most immediate opportunity is for folks who are just below a, a score cutoff. Okay, okay. Uh, where so sort of near prime or kind of subprime, but kind of within the range of acceptable right. credit risk. Where, where you you don't see enough strong derogatory negative marks to 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 say like there's no way no right. matter what kind of cash flow data we, we see here like there's just no way but you you see like uh, you know either not enough history or a few small slip ups where if you then get a look into this person's bank account and you get to see oh wow they are actually receiving a direct deposit every two weeks and it's 
it's consistent and maybe it's grown over the last two years and you can understand their expenses uh, and understand how they're recurring or not. You can understand their cash balance and whether that's growing or declining. You can actually make a very compelling case for why you know, many of those folks should be approved. You know, that's where we're seeing the most lift. We're seeing it within credit card. We're seeing it in personal loan. We're seeing it in auto. Uh, we haven't spent as much time in the mortgage space yet, although there are some, some players who are spending a fair bit of time there. And I think our, our philosophical view is that it's hard to imagine a world 10, 20 years from now where cash flow underwriting is not foundational to how every major financial institution makes credit risk assessment. There's just such a wealth of information that is orthogonal to credit bureau data. But the challenge is how do you make sense of that data? How do you get your hands on it? Uh, and how do you ultimately do all of that in a compliant manner? So I'm glad you mentioned the compliant thing, because that was one thing I wanted to ask you about. And it's it's interesting to me, actually, because there's a certain, I think, philosophy within fintech, which is that... Um, we don't really need to worry about the compliance portion of it. And we don't need to think of ourselves as a credit bureau. We don't really want to tangle with FCRA or consider ourselves a consumer reporting agency. You guys took that on pretty early, as I understand, in terms of sort of uh, embracing that compliance burden. I'm, I'm curious if you can kind of talk us through, and this can apply both to uh, the Passport product as well as Cash Atlas, but like, how do you think about your role from a compliance perspective under FCRA, like why is that important? Why was that something that you wanted to, to sort of embrace as a part of what you offer? We began the investment of becoming a credit bureau within I'd probably say like six or nine months of our founding. So we've, we've been acting as a bureau since the very beginning. And the, the reason for it is that the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA, is outdated. It's antiquated. It's been around for, for decades and it has not nearly kept up with the innovation that's happened in the space the last 10 years, not to mention just obviously the last last five. As a result of that, there is a lot of regulatory gray. And our view is that when there is regulatory gray, the large financial institutions will not adopt because it takes a very forward-leaning and innovative compliance leader or regulatory leader to be comfortable taking risk and absorbing gray when anytime they've done that in the past, they get slapped with a big fine. And so you have to, you have to skew and take the more conservative route. And so by, by taking a view that we will be a CRA, we are a CRA, uh, we've been able to get and, you know, and, and setting up the policies and procedures and all of the uh, all of the steps required to be able to make a statement like that, which are uh, extensive, and I, I won't go too deep into it right now, to be able to make that statement, you're able to get those compliance leaders uh, more comfortable with doing business with you because you're able to help protect them and provide greater clarity, even in the event of a regulatory gray area. So returning to like Cash Atlas, just as an example, in that particular case, let's say I, Alex Johnson, am applying for a loan. I'm uh, sort of uh, not going to be qualified based on my credit history or credit score, and I want to add to that my my cash flow data to to feed into that. One of the things under FCRA, which I think is just an interesting example, is my right to know why I was declined. So let's say I still don't uh, get approved. How do you approach like declination reasons and helping consumers get some visibility into that? Because to your point, like cash flow data is really 
powerful from an underwriting perspective, but it's not the same as credit bureau data. And I don't think, you know, consumers understand it or think about it the same way. So how do you think about, like in the case of FCRA, like declination reasons as something that fits into the the cash atlas experience that you can enable? It's the same thing, right? Like in a, in a credit bureau context, if you get rejected for not having a sufficiently high score, uh, the bureaus and or FICO will provide the lender with, you know, your decline reason code. So what are the top handful of reasons for why this individual was was declined? And then as a consumer, you can go and look at those reason codes and at the very least understand why. And, and, and if some of that seems wrong, you can contest and you can say, that's not fair. That's not right. There is a misstatement. There's a misaccuracy. And there's a bunch of rules and policies and procedures around how quickly the bureaus need to be able to respond to uh, ultimately a dispute. It's the same exact thing, right? It's the same idea here, which is that as part of our uh, offering, uh, we have to be able to provide decline reason codes. We have to be able to educate the consumer around why a particular outcome came out of of, of an application decision. But I I think from a consumer benefit perspective, our our, our view is, is that in this information, depending on how you implement, can help more people into the financial system. And so ultimately that more data allows more financial institutions to, f- to feel greater confidence and greater visibility on a consumer. And in doing so, you help more people into the financial system. But some individuals' cash flow data will not show a, a strong profile in which case you're doing a disservice to the overall system by bringing them in. And so being able to strike that balance, I think it's a very delicate and and difficult role that the credit bureaus play, which is almost like the the arbiters of, you know, how likely someone is to repay or not based on uh, information they can see. And ultimately it's on the financial institution to make that call. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because that's, that's something that I, I worry about occasionally as I see, you know, fintech sort of making its way more into lending and the credit bureau space. And I've I've written about this in my newsletter, but taking that responsibility for being that sort of neutral arbiter seriously, I think is really important because you do have a temptation, I think a lot of times, and this applies to the, the traditional credit bureaus as well, of sort of putting your fingers on the scale a bit in favor of one set of constituents over another. And so having that balance and that long-term view, I think is incredibly important. The last thing I wanted to ask you about on the Cash Atlas front before we sort of wrap up here is it seems like it's a bit of a different probably experience from a product perspective for you guys because in the case of the Credit Passport product, while there were credit bureaus and sources of information that you were connecting to, it seems like a lot of the infrastructure that you built to facilitate getting data from different places, normalizing it, standardizing it, making it work in a format that will work for U.S. lenders. A lot of that infrastructure was stuff that you guys had to kind of build from scratch because it just didn't exist. In the case of Cash Atlas and cash flow-based underwriting, as you you hinted at before, a lot of great work has been done by aggregators and others in the space to build a lot of that infrastructure, which I'm guessing allowed you guys to kind of come in and build on top of that. So I'm curious, Comparing that to building the Credit Passport product, what were some of the, I guess, advantages and disadvantages of building on a more sort of modern fintech infrastructure for that that Cash Atlas product? The Credit Passport product offering is really one of a kind. We're the only company in the world that, that has this capability. 
and it's being used to support millions of immigrants who move to the U.S. every year. Uh, and over the course of this year and in the next uh, in the next few, we're rolling out that capability to support support migrants all over the world. So we've been public about our launch in the U.K. So if someone moves, let's say, from India to London, uh, that's another opportunity for us to create to create value. In the case of, of of Cash Atlas, we're not the only ones out there who know a thing or two about bank transaction data. There's a lot of great great companies out there, but I think what we what we bring is a deep familiarity with how to use consumer permission data in the context of being a credit bureau, and there aren't many, uh, probably less than a handful of examples of companies who've, who've been able to successfully do that. Because the credit passport, it's the same idea, right? It's at the point of application, at the point of greatest need, we allow a recent immigrant to pull in their data from wherever they're from and to use that data to have a better chance of of approval. It's the same idea with Cash Atlas, where we allow a consumer who at the point of greatest need is able to link in more bank data and to use that information to support their eligibility for for a product. But the, the insights become much more analytics uh, oriented uh, they become a lot more compliance oriented and there's a whole swath of opportunity around how do you how do you bring together the orthogonal insights from bureau data with bank data to ultimately push the frontier of helping more people into the financial system and as a company that's been working with uh, global bureau data since our since our founding we think we're very well positioned to be able to help the industry make as much sense out of those two unique data sources. That's very cool. Yeah, it's um, leaning back on that sort of core strength of knowing how to sort of act as a bureau, knowing how to how to work with uh, lenders, including very traditional, very conservative lenders that don't don't like to do this stuff as a matter of course, I think is is so important. The very nature of how most bank transaction data is being used is for driving consumer insights, not for credit risk assessment, right? So like the way categorization and classification works for the vast majority of, of the bank transaction data space is it's, it's really helping, you know, understand a merchant code and categorize and create these like delightful consumer experiences. You know, it's rare for that information to be used for credit risk assessment. So building foundationally on a classification categorization level, how you understand credit risk and really bringing that traditional credit bureau lens to how you do credit risk assessment to cash flow data is, is really how we've had to set up our stack. And that allows us to make sure that we're doing that, you know, that we're, that we're creating the most consumer benefit we can. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a good point. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but I think one thing that's kind of constantly sort of underestimated by people who start tangling with uh, bank account data is that it's messy, right? And like a lot of the value comes out of the way that you categorize it, the way that you clean the data, and the extent to which you're doing that with a specific aim in mind. So no, that that makes a ton of sense. Um, two questions uh, for you, and then I'll let you go. Looking sort of more broadly at the space, I mean, obviously, you guys are very thoughtful about the way that you think about the evolution of credit and lending and the role that new sources of data are going to play in that. I'm just curious, like when you look at the space with the lens of like what's going to happen over the next 10 years, what are some of the big picture things that you're looking at or sort of expecting to see over that time frame? I mean, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll call out two trends uh, that I'm really excited about. One is a point I made earlier, which is I, I think consumer permission data is is the future. I think it's hard to imagine a world where 
the credit reporting system is not augmented by giving consumers tools at the point of need to be able to be approved or uh, to be better understood uh, for products. And I think that's ultimately how we eliminate the term, you know, financial inclusion. Like it, it, it's just it, everyone has has a way in. It's a, it's a, it's a concept that my uh, my partner, um, Sarah Davies, who's our, our chief data and analytics officer, she's the creator of the Vantage Score. She's really big, a bit, been a big advocate of, of, of this. And Sarah is actually the one who helped create all of our cash atlas and, frankly, credit passport analytics uh, and has really been an incredible um, you know, visionary in, in that. Um, the second trend I'll, I'll, I'll share is, and we're starting to see this really come to life, especially in the last few, few months, is this concept of a borderless financial system. Mm. Our view is that it, it's inevitable that whether it's 10, 20, 30 years from now, any consumer on the planet will be able to shop for financial services the same way they can shop on Amazon all around the world. And so today, you know, you buy, you buy on Amazon uh, all over the world. You can buy on Alibaba all over the world. And it's, it's no different. Like we believe financial services will head in that direction. So consumers will be able to bank and borrow all around the world for whatever provider gives them the best product. Uh, and so what I, what I mean by that is, you know, someone living in Brazil today, there are already players out there that are doing this, can open a U.S. bank account and they will be able to open a U.S. card and they will, you know, they will be able to finance their mortgage from a Japanese bank uh, or whoever is able to provide them that lowest cost of capital. And so the same way that capital markets, so like equity markets and global debt markets are efficient on a global level, you know, we believe the future will have a similar level of efficiency for consumers all around the world. Uh, we could dive deep into that rabbit hole because that's a super interesting topic and one that I, I've been thinking about lately too because it just strikes me as being inefficient in a way that doesn't really benefit anyone. And to your point, a lot of these problems persist not because there's not value to be unlocked, but just because the plumbing and the regulatory infrastructure and all of the other pieces make it painful enough to sort of keep going with the status quo rather than to try to make it change. You got it. No, that makes sense. Um, last question, the one we like to end on uh, with this show is looking back on um, the journey that you guys have gone on and the lessons learned. And I appreciate you being so candid about, you know, sometimes it's just throwing spaghetti at the wall. If you th we're talking to a fintech founder or operator who's a little earlier in their journey about how they should go about thinking about building competitive differentiation and and really sort of building something that's going to be a sustainable source of value for the ecosystem for a long time, what advice would you give them? Don't shy away from hard problems because hard, hard problems are where you find a real moat and where you find a real moat is where you find defensible margins. And I, I think in, in general, my view as an entrepreneur is you have to be problem first in building a business. You need to identify an acute pain and dissect it from all 360 degrees. You have to be able to look at it from every possible angle and really understand it from a first principles uh, perspective and going super deep into the user research. Uh, and so our first six months of our of our founding, we were just every week talking to 10, 20 recent immigrants, just like understanding everything there is to, to know about the immigration journey, where you're applying, how you're applying, the issues you're running into, talking to every bank 
uh, that would give us the time. We would walk into every bank branch up and down the peninsula here in, in the Bay Area and just walk in the front door and try to get approved for a loan and understand what are the roadblocks that you end up running into. And so just being like maniacally obsessed about understanding a problem and all its intricacies is where you'll be able to better understand where there are opportunities to solve it. And your ability to actually solve it from a systemic and a first principles basis is where uh, you have an opportunity to really create a big moat and defensible business. That's awesome. And I imagine that for you guys, even though you've gotten much bigger and have a lot more resources, like I'm sure when you were embarking on the, the Cash Atlas project, you approached it in the same way, right? A ton of user research. I mean, talking to dozens of lenders every every, every few weeks and understanding their challenges. I mean, it's, it's the same idea, you know, and our, and our hope as a business is to be able to continue to, to innovate, continue to bring, you know, a technology first modern set of solutions into uh, the credit risk and infrastructure space and, 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 and frankly, make sure that the, the credit bureaus are also continuing to innovate uh, to help this drive this industry forward. Awesome. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Misha Esipov, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Of course. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more secrets to stand out in our crowded industry, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to hear the next episode first. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? I'll see you next time.